Not gonna lie, the nostalgia factor is so high for my guest today, it was a tough decision choosing the music to introduce him with. We've got classic Grange Hill and EastEnders, but I thought why not throw it back to his mid-90s pop career before he jetted off to Hollywood. So here to reminisce with me about those times and talk about his life after that thing he did, as well as his new acting school, please welcome Sean Maguire. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm very good. Very good indeed. Lovely to talk to you. How are you doing? Uh, glad it's Friday. You and me both. <laughs> Live for my weekends and holidays. Uh, congratulations on the birth of your daughter, Emily, in September. How are you all adjusting to newborn life? Uh, good. She's wonderful. She's marvellous. She's the most smiley, happy baby. And she's just the cutest thing in the world. But uh, with that beautiful, cute smiliness also comes... Waking up two or three times a night, as, as is often the way with a four going on five month old. And we also have a very old dog who has decided now would be a great time to want to bark to get out. Because we used to have a doggy door and then we changed our back doors. And so we don't have a doggy door. So when he wants, because he's an old man, he needs to go for a pee. Uh, and he <laughs> decides to go for a pee, not when my daughter's woken up. So we wake up about three or four times through the night, uh, my wife or I. We take turns at doing night duty and doing morning duty because we've got to take our sons to school, so we have to get up at 6.30. So we are somewhat sleep-deprived at the moment, but we know that we're just in the eye of the storm and this will pass and we will get some normalcy back in our lives. But at the moment, yeah, we're kind of just in that in that very sweet spot of... I'm so tired. You're never going <laughs> to sleep again, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 I see now why it's a form of, um, of torture at Guantanamo Bay, because, you know, when you're not sleeping, <laughs> even the most simple task becomes incredibly difficult. But um, I just keep telling myself, just keep going. You're going to get there. It'll be all right. This is why I don't have children. Yes. Well, enjoy leisurely lions <laughs> on a Sunday. Enjoy reading the newspapers and having a coffee, being uninterrupted. I do. I've got to 41 and I've managed to completely avoid it. Do you know what? A lot of people, it's such a, it's such a sort of controversial thing. And I've got lots of female friends who are in their 40s that didn't have children. And they say that they're made to feel bad because they never had kids. And I'm like, I disagree. I think it's great if you want to have kids. And kids are wonderful. But I also think people should be congratulated that when they don't because... Procreation's not for everybody, and we've got enough people on planet Earth, and we're obviously not taking care of it. I've never had anyone congratulate me for not having well, children. Well, I'm going to congratulate you. Well done for not overpopulating the Earth, because I've already you. made three. So we've made maybe one more than we, we should have. We should really stick to, like, two, but... We, 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 we have three. Uh, it wasn't planned. Uh, she, just, she just came along. But I do, I do sort of think that... Um, you know, I, I just think it's it's a really awful thing to put on, oh, well, if you didn't have children, then you're not a good person. I think that's the complete opposite. I think you're actually putting the planet first and your own needs second. So I say fair play to any woman that, that sort of goes, you know what, I think I just want to have a career and I want to do what I want to do. Thank you. I'll take that. You know, you can get a dog. I've got two cats. You've got two cats. There you go. There you go. You're, giving, you're putting love out in the world and you're getting love back. That's all you need. <laughs> You're not going to have any stroppy teenage cats going, I'm going out, mum, I don't care what you say. Cats will just be like, if you want to go out, go out. I'm fine. Uh, and your parents are going to see Emily for the first time in a few days as well. They are, they are. It's a the week. first time they've seen you for the first time in a few years as well. Is Well, I saw my dad, I flew over to Paris uh, about a month or so ago to do one of these uh, fan conventions with my friends from Once Upon a Time, and my dad was desperate to get out of the house. And I said, I'm going to Paris, you want to come? And he was like, yes. 
Yes, immediately. Uh, so I got to see my dad, but it was really, really briefly. I only got to see him at the end of the day when I was knackered. So I'm so excited to to have them both here and get to have some time with their grandchildren and time with me and, you know, just to take my mum and dad to the pub and, and just have a just have a nice time and catch up with them because it's been a long two years mm. for everybody, hasn't it? It's just, I think we've all, I, I used to say 10 years, 20 years ago, I used to say, you know, our generation's never had our great test. We never had our great war. We never had a great depression. And now, you know, 20 odd years later, it feels like we've had everything. So, um, you know, I congratulate anybody that's got through it because it's not been easy. Well, I hope it's a lovely family reunion for you. I, I think it will be. I'm, I'm sure it will be. OK, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. So you're only 45, but... Yes, only only. Do you know that's the only, only in my obituary would it read only 45. <laughs> Any other time, you go, oh, you're 45. It's only if you were saying, but he died so young. It would only be in an obituary that that, that would be referred to as young. But thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it, Jennifer. Well, you're only 45, but you've already had a 40 year career. Yes, that is true. That is true. So we have a lot of ground to cover, we but uh, we we're going to start off back in 1988 with the role that really kickstarted your career, Tearaway Tegs Ratcliffe in Grange Hill. Yes. Um, you auditioned with your brother and two cousins for roles in Grange Hill. That's right. But you were the only one to get one. Well, do you know, funny, I don't believe in karma because there's too many terrible people in the world that are still alive when we've lost Sidney Poitier and Betty White. So I don't believe in karma. But this was rather karmic. My older cousin who's still, he's literally my best friend. My He was my tour manager when we did music. And I remember him saying to me, you know, don't worry if you don't get it because you are a bit small. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm a bit small. But then it turns out my cheeky tininess um, seemed to be appealing to them. And so I just got incredibly lucky because like a lot of kids in, in England, I watched Grange Hill religiously and, um, you know, it was a really big deal back then. And so I was just excited to be at Elstree Studios and we met. We all met Angie from EastEnders while we were there in reception. And so I, I, I never dreamt that I would get it. I just, it just seemed way beyond the realm of possibility. But I was just excited to be at a studio because I was such a film kid. I was so obsessed with film and television from a really young age. I made a film when I was five called Voyager and My Father with Laurence Olivier and Alan Bates and Jane Asher. And being on a set, I was just like, oh, this is for me. This is, this is like being in a toy store. Um, and then I was, my brothers and sisters and I were in a movie called The Meaning of Life, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, when I was about seven or something like that. So I'd had a little bit of experience of being on a set, but didn't think that I had any right or, or chance of getting it. And I don't know, just just whatever luck, good fortune, I, I managed to nab the role. And then that really sort of... Led to awkward conversations around the dining table. <laughs> you were the only one uh, to get Well, no. I mean, my, my big brother, who's also coming when my... When my mum and dad are coming, is is just the best big brother in the world. And has always been such a support. There's never been an ounce of jealousy, never been an ounce of envy. He he didn't really want to do this. This was one that wasn't for him. But he's just the best big brother. He's always been the one that I've sort of turned to when I'm feeling down. And he's so supportive and so encouraging and always says, Oh, you're so good. And you, you know, he's always there when I need that lift. And, you know, an actor's life is not an easy one. And so um he he and my cousins are getting you know we're all super super close they it was never really for them so there's never been like oh 
you got it and we didn't. They just always knew oh, that's always what you were going to do. So it, it it's it's never been like that. Um, I mean, you know, like all brothers and cousins, they're more than happy to take the mick out of me for whatever silly thing I've done recently. It, you know, whether it be playing a part or playing tags where I'm in the bath or you know stuff like that. So uh, no, been really really lucky. Never had any family problems like that um, because my family are all dancers and they're all off doing their own thing. So. It all worked out okay. But Tegs was, I didn't realize, I was just so excited to get it. I was so, so excited to be in it. And, and you know, when I joined people like John Alford and George Christopher and, you know, the older cast members, I was like, wow, you know, I, I really looked. I asked for their autographs on the first day. And they were like, you don't need our autographs. You're in the show now. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just give me the autograph anyway, because I'll probably be fired and, and this will be over real quick. Um, and, and, and some of them, like John Alford and some other you know, got in touch over the years, like via Twitter and stuff and just said, well done, mate, you know, you're doing great, proud of you. And, you know, I feel like I was really lucky with with friends, with family, with the people that I work with, that I got a great group of people around me that gave me the best shot at at trying to make a career out of it, Mm. you know. You got thrown into some quite serious storylines for an 11, 12-year-old. You know, your brother was in prison, you were the victim of child neglect, Mm. got put into foster care, and you were always getting into trouble. That must have been a great training ground, acting-wise. Do you know, it was amazing from the point of view, of course, you know, I was so young, I didn't realise that this was a good thing. Being given storylines like that, um, gave my character something to do, which made him more interesting, I think. And what I didn't realize is because, you know, obviously you're going out to nine and a half million people, but you don't see them. I didn't realize that what Tegs was going through was what so many other children were going through. And so I started getting a lot of like fan mail as a kid, which was incredibly flattering. But a lot of them were like, I, you know, I'm in care or I'm, and I realized that Tegs was a really, had a much more important um, effect than just, just being a character on a show because it was something that kids that were going through a tough time could relate to. And like, well, if Tegs can get through it, I can get through it. And then when I met kids, you know, as I got a little older, I met quite a lot of kids that said Tegs was really important. And that meant the world to me because I just thought I was just playing a character on TV. But the idea that I had a, a greater sort of effect or, or that it gave some comfort to children that go, were going through a tough time. Because then I, when I left Growing Chill, I went on to Dodgems. I was playing another kid who was in care. And then in Growing Pains, I was in a show where I was sort of fostered. So I did get kind of typecast as the, the little kid who nobody loved. <laughs> but of course, that, that kind of, that evokes sympathy in the audience. And sometimes, if you're lucky, it, it means that people sort of take a, a shine to you. So, you know, nothing was orchestrated, nothing was planned, but I... I look back and think I was really, really lucky that they were the kind of roles that I was getting rather than the cute kid or the popular kid. I, I was the I was the kid who needed help. <laughs> so not much has changed, really. Watching it back now, you're also the kid that spent a lot of time running. Yes, a lot of time running. I, I've ran more on screen than Tom Cruise. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm never static. I'm constantly in motion. You're always running from bullies or running from trouble. Bullies, you, police officers, teachers. You were getting good cardio workouts. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I I I I didn't realize I was I was getting my steps in early. <laughs> and of course you had your unrequited love story with Justine Dean. Um, yeah. Noted for the considerable height difference between you. <laughs> I know. We were sort of like an 80s pop duo, weren't we? We were sort of like some sort of mismatched eurythmics or something. And again, you know, I obviously she was very pretty and I had a huge crush on her and I don't think she'd have even looked at me twice because I was like a little troll. Um <laughs> 
but again, I think those weird things, because you think, really, you're going to cast those two beside each other? But look at the height difference. But again, sometimes it's that strange alchemy, that odd casting that people kind of go, oh, Tegs and Justine. It's a sweet thing. And again, I, I've just been playing on the sympathy of the public since I, since I arrived on screen. It's like, oh, he's so small. He's never going to get the girl, which I didn't. But um, No, you went to Germany. <laughs> some, yeah, I went off to Germany, uh, which is an odd, an odd move for the writers. But, you know, you don't question it. You just get on with it and do what they say. I don't know if you heard, but sadly, Nicholas Donnelly, who was the CDT teacher, Mr. McKenzie, he died a couple of weeks I ago. I did. I just saw that. I don't really look at social media anymore because I, I find it quite um, corrosive. But I somebody, a friend of mine mentioned it on WhatsApp and I looked it up and I was like, oh gosh. But he was such a lovely man. And I heard that he passed away in his sleep without pain. And as sad as it is that we've lost him, it was befitting such a sweet and lovely man. He was always really warm and friendly. You know, because older actors, when they're dealing with kids, sometimes they're like, ugh, never work with kids or animals. But Nicholas was a really sweet, lovely gentleman. And I was very, very sad to hear of his passing. Because I was going to ask, I had um, Lee McDonald, who was Zamo on Grange Hill. He was one of my first guests on the podcast a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. And he said that when he was on the show, the kid cast were actually afraid of the teachers in like a real teacher-pupil relationship was that the same with you and your castmates i was certainly scared of mr bronson who wasn't because who wasn't scared of mr bronson i mean he was an admiral on, on the death star do you know what i mean <laughs> of course you're going to be scared of him but i do you know I, I think in a way i was sort of scared of everything I, I was scared of the chaperones i was scared of the other kids i was scared of you know i just i think being small very short you know i i look back and i, I, was, I was scared of being embarrassed you know by things um but I, you know, a lot of the teachers, you know, George Cooper, who played Mr. Griffiths, uh, Gwyneth Powell, who played Mrs. McCluskey, all of them were really sweet to me. So I, I don't really remember being afraid of them per se. I, I was just more in a constant state of fear just because life was coming at me pretty fast. And, and um, you know, just I, I suppose like any 10-year-old, the world just seemed so big and I just seemed such a tiny, small thing in it. So I was I was perpetually scared, but my time there was good. I, I I do remember being so happy to go to Grange Hill rather than be at my own comprehensive school because, uh, you know, people might think if you're on a show like Grange Hill, you oh you're probably Mr. Cool at school. It's complete opposite. Most of the kids hated me because I, I was skipping out on school to go to a TV studio to film, which you know obviously made them kind of a bit jealous. And the teachers, most not all, but most of my teachers were terrible with me i mean one of them in particular who i won't name uh was absolutely vile when i think back it bordered line on child abuse he was so horrible to me and i just i loathed every minute of it and i couldn't wait to get out of my real comprehensive i'd left grain chill by then but because yeah you left grain chill of your own accord to focus on school. i did yeah which was an odd move but it was my dad's my dad's suggestion he said look i know that you love it but if you look at the track record, very few people come out of this and get a career as an adult. And I know that that's what you want to do. But let's be honest, it's really hard for a child actor to make it to an adult actor. So I think you should really focus on your schoolwork. You've missed so much. Why don't you leave now and focus on your exams and try and get some GCSEs? And at least then you'll have an education to fall back on. And my dad is a very smart guy and always had the right and best intentions guided me through those years, him and my mum, very, very well. And I listened. It was a tough decision because I didn't want to leave. 
But I left um, to focus on my schoolwork and then I got my own show called Dodgems. Uh, and that's sort of when it started to feel like, oh, maybe this could be something. Um, but it just a happy accident, really, that I left to focus on school and then something else popped up. And, and that really kind of felt like the ball was rolling for me then. Again, you may or may not have heard this, but um, Phil Redman said a few weeks ago he's working on a Grange Hill film. I did. That may feature some old pupils uh, and their kids now. So if you got a call, would you revive Tegs? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, look, I, I feel like I owe Phil Redman and I owe Grange Hill a great deal. So if it was just to kind of do a little bit of cameoing, I, I, to be honest, the idea of flying from Los Angeles to London to go and do a day just so, oh, look, there's tags. That's, that's a bit too much for me with three kids and running the school that I'm doing and, uh, and the other projects that I've got going. I don't know. But if I would ask, if I was asked, I, I would certainly consider it. But I would imagine that they're going to go for more the, the years that were before me. That's what I would do if I was Phil. But, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's great and I'm glad. I, I personally think it would be better to revive it as a TV show because I think that the, it's as relevant as ever. Uh, what's going on with kids and social media, bullying, things. There's a lot of topics that I think Grangeville covered very well. So, you know, it's interesting that he's gone for a movie rather than to revamp the TV show. But maybe the movie, if it's popular, will lead to the show again. But, you know, it was a very influential touchstone show in Britain. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised. And, and I'm very happy to hear Sir Phil, Sir Phil is, um, is doing that. So, you know, if, if, if I get asked, I'd, I'd certainly consider it. And so you graduated from Grange Hill to the studio next door and joined EastEnders in 1993 yes. as Aidan Brosnan, the Irish apprentice footballer for mm -hmm. Walford FC. Yeah. And you only appeared in 63 episodes over the year that you were in EastEnders. Is that how many it was? I didn't know. Yeah, that. but again, the storylines you were given, you were in a coma after taking ecstasy, you were homeless, right. had depression, and in classic EastEnders fashion, because no one can have a happy Christmas ever, Nope. Aidan attempted suicide on Christmas Day. Well, actually, that was the plan. If memory serves, the plan was that I was going to commit suicide. And again, Aidan seemed to be a character that for whatever reason, people seem to like. And I, I got quite a lot of letters from young people, um, especially young people that were having a tough time. And when they told me that the character was going to commit suicide, I said to them, please don't. I, I'm, I, I'm happy to leave in any fashion you want, but don't have him commit suicide because inevitably there are suicides around Christmas. Sadly, sometimes they're young people. And I know that the tabloids will say it's a copycat death and that they copied me or something, or that's possible. Mm. And I couldn't deal with that. My conscience couldn't deal with that. I, I, that would break me if I felt in any way responsible for something like that. And I said, please find another way. I'm not telling you how to run your show, but please don't, don't do that. Don't do that on Christmas Day. It'll ruin the country's Christmas, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, nope, that's what we're doing. And I was like, okay, well, I've voiced my opinion. And then as luck, bad luck would have it, I broke my leg. Uh, a week or two later, in a, I was doing this stupid motorcycle thing that I shouldn't have been doing. Broke my leg very, very badly. Um, very nearly killed myself. Very nearly actually died in the motorcycle accident had I hit the wall differently. If I'd hit it with my head, I'd be dead for sure because I hit the wall at about 50 miles an hour. And 
Um, and because I broke my leg, I couldn't walk. And because I couldn't walk, I couldn't jump off a building. Oh. So um, it, it, fate sort of stepped in. And then uh, Aidan just went off back to Ireland or something, I think. I can't remember. Um, but so I was very glad that um, that storyline didn't end up the way that it was supposed to go. Because I just, I just thought inevitably something bad will happen out of this. So, yeah, fate had a hand in that one. Um, I wasn't happy about breaking my leg, but I was very happy that I, uh, I didn't bum out the entire country by committing suicide on Christmas Day. I mean, come on, EastEnders. <laughs> I mean, teenage suicide on Christmas Day. Hey, happy Christmas, everybody. <laughs> but that, that's EastEnders. I think Grange Hill and EastEnders combined had, you'd kind of like acted in every dramatic situation you possibly could do by the time you were 17. Yeah. So retrospectively, it became a great training ground because I hadn't, I wasn't at stage school like a lot of the other kids. And so I consequently got, um, quite a lot of experience at playing emotional stuff and playing, uh, you know, a little bit more weighty stuff. And of course, as an actor, that's what you want to do. You don't want to just be going into the cafe and asking for a cup of tea. Um, but so at my short time on, on both shows, I, I got to sort of learn and grow a little bit and, and start to figure out what this acting thing was all about. I think at the time you received the most coverage and fan mail in EastEnders history, as there hadn't really been a teen heartthrob on the show before. I mean, that, that Christmas Day episode was watched by 23 million people. Wow. Um, but you weren't too comfortable with that pin-up status that you acquired. Did that have anything to do with your decision to leave the show after only a year? I mean, I, I just became aware very quickly that, don't get me wrong, it's very flattering to receive fan mail and it's flattering to to be a, a pin-up or have people have the, your poster on the wall. I'm not saying that it's not. It, it is nice. It's very, very flattering. But I realised very early on, I was looking at actors that I loved, people that I admired, and I saw how quickly people that were in that sort of position shied away from that. Because once you put yourself out there as just that idol that then you immediately start the egg timer on your shelf life and if it's just about being cute and pretty you know looks fade and and you're no longer that you know you're the hot thing of the moment and then it's somebody else and if you put all your eggs in that basket inevitably that time will come to an end and somebody else will be in your position and I my dad again was very good at sort of saying don't don't chase after that there's that's this kind of a, a bit of a an oasis a bit of a mirage Try to find the roles where you're being pushed as an actor. Try to grow as an actor. Just don't put too much stock in that. Uh, so I went off and became a pop star, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, something that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But, you know, I, I, I just realized that I, um, also celebrity is something that one may seek until you get it. Like you said, something like 23 million people are watching the show. There's 60-odd million people in the UK. So that means sort of like one in three recognize you. And I found that level of, I'm not saying being famous, it's different than being famous. Just being recognizable is not what it, you think it's going to be. I was hit in the face so many times. Uh, going on holiday with my friends led to so many altercations and, and terrible moments. And it just, it just made life so much harder than it did make it easier or cool that I realized, oh, this is definitely, celebrity is not for me. I just wanted to just be an actor. Uh, and, and I'll take whatever fame that comes with that, but it, I didn't want to be famous for fame's sake. And I didn't want to just be turning up at premieres and 
be in the newspaper and stuff. Because also, you know, the British public, like any public, after a while they go, oh God, not this guy again. And, and with the pop thing, I found that I was getting to the point where I was too, I was too overexposed. And, and inevitably people get sick of you. And the job of an actor is to pop up, do something great and then disappear. Let them miss you. Um, and I just got to a point where I was too everywhere at once and even I was getting sick of myself. So that's why when the the chance to, you know, after the music thing, um, when the opportunity came to go to America, um, I thought it'd be good. I thought, you know, maybe I'll try America for a few years and then I'll come back and maybe people won't be so bored of me. But, you know, again, fate had uh, other plans. On that note, then, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. You mentioned it just a second ago that you had an accident towards the end of your time on EastEnders mm. and you almost died in that incident. Mm. But while you were recovering in hospital, that was when you were offered your six record deal. Yeah. And you'd previously said that you didn't really have any desire to be a singer at all. Or talent. That's important as well. No desire or talent. I kind of thought it was important if you sign a record deal to have some musical talent, a bit like to play an instrument, to be able to sing, or to even have a passion for music, which I have an enormous passion for music now. But at the time, I really knew nothing about music. And I just felt like, this deal, this deal with Parlophone EMI, the label that the Beatles were signed to and Queen and Blur and all these other great artists, I was like, shouldn't this go to somebody with some discernible talent? And I said to them, look, I think it's only fair if you're going to give me this check for a bunch of cash. I should warn you, I don't have any talent. And they said, well, we feel differently. And I said, well, I think you're wrong. But okay, because I didn't know. I mean, the accident led me to, I was lying in hospital for nine, 10 days, kind of considering what had happened and that life was nearly over. And I'd, I'd been offered record deals before and I'd turned them down because I said, no, I can't sing. I don't, I don't have any desire. I'm an actor. I don't, I'm not a singer. And then after the accident, the, the only guy that I trusted that I liked, this beautiful, wonderful man called Ian Allen, came to me and said, look, I really think, I know you don't want to do it, but I, in my hands, I promise I will, we'll make this good and it'll be fun. And because I'd nearly died, I thought, ah, oh, you know what, I could be dead. So why not give it a go? It'll last one single, it'll flop, and then they'll release me from the contract and I'll carry on with my life. And then three albums and eight top 40 singles Yeah, <laughs> it ended up lasting a little longer than I anticipated. And I still didn't really understand it all. And then I sort of said to myself, you know what, this is a great opportunity. You're an actor. Play the part of a pop star. Just, just pretend you're an actor playing the role of a pop star. And that's essentially what I did. Uh, so I just tried to get through it by pretending I was a pop star, even though I knew that I wasn't. Did you just get kind of swept up in it all then? Um, to be honest, I, you know, I'd left EastEnders and I, I, again, like leaving Grange Hill, you know, you like after you leave EastEnders, that's it. You're probably not going to do anything. And then I, I thought, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be out of work and I don't know what to do. And so when Ian came along and he was such a great, is such a great guy and I trusted him, I just thought, like I said, it, you know, it'll last a year, maybe, tops. Um, and my friends Ant and Deck were doing the same thing. And I thought, oh, you know, it will, it will be a laugh. We'll all do it together and it'll be fun. And it just lasted a bit longer than I anticipated, really. And, and people bought some of the records, which was shocking to me. And Radio One played my records on the radio, which was shocking to me. 
Did you play Wembley? Am I making that up? Yeah, yeah. Myself and Boyzone played Wembley. We we played the Albert Hall. We played we played insane venue. We once played the, like a one of those radio you know, radio shows. Uh, there was like 105,000 people there, like at Leeds Castle or somewhere like that. And, you know, when you're young, you just go, okay, 105,000 people, uh, let's go do it. You know, you just, that, that naivety, that youthful naivety of just, let's just get on with it and, and we'll see what happens. And so, yeah, it was a, it's an odd thing. When I talk about it or think about it now, it feels like it was happened to somebody else. It feels sort of like I'm making it up. Like, you weren't a pop, you didn't play Wembley, shut up. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, I'd agree with you if it wasn't on film somewhere. And again, you left the music business of your own accord to focus on acting and you flew off to the States in 2000, 2001. And I guess over here, it's kind of a bit out of sight, out of mind. Yes. But over there, your star was really rising. You had leading roles in three US sitcoms before landing your first lead role in big budget Hollywood film, Meet the Spartans, in 2008. And obviously mm. your star has gone up since then and, and to the point where it's probably fair to say that you're more famous in the States now than you are here in the UK. But what were those early years in the US like for you? Uh, amazing. Uh, a, a, like a strange mixture. Amazing because my wildest dream was to go to Hollywood and work at Warner Brothers and, you know, work on the same you know, work across the way from the cast of Friends. Our, the stage next to us when we were doing Off Centre was ER. Uh, you know, a couple of stages down was the West Wing. And to me, you know, like a kid who loves football, the idea of stepping on the turf at Old Trafford or at Wembley to play for your team, that's what it felt like to me. I mean, if you just said, go, you can be in an FA Cup final for Tottenham or you can go do this, it would be like, no, this all the way. So it was sort of like all my wildest dreams, all my greatest fantasies came true. And the first show I did was a show called Off Center, which was by the guys who'd made um, American Pie. And the, the, the actors that I was with, John Cho, Eddie K. Thomas, and Jason George, are still to this day my kind of closest friends. They're, all three of them are godfather to my children. We're all super, super close. Um, so not only was I making a really fun show that I really loved and would watch, but I was making it with my three best friends and we're at Warner Brothers and we're in Hollywood and we're finishing work at 4.30 and going off and playing pitch and putt and just going, well, this is pretty good and they're paying us for this, you know? So it was just, it was so much fun and it was so carefree and it was just the, you know, other than now with my kids and my wife, it was probably one of the happiest times I've ever had. And I wasn't getting punched in the face anymore. And it was sunny. And I'm living in the Hollywood Hills, driving my Jeep around, thinking, well, this all worked out great. You know, but like every every great thing, it must come to an end. And then so then that show finished, it was sad. But then Warner Brothers employed me to go and work on Eve for three years. And then when that finished, we worked on the class and and stuff. So um it was a great, it was a great period of my life and of my career. But again, I started looking towards the distance and like, yeah, this is fun, but I, I need to sort of get back to trying to play drama and do things where, because sitcom is the actor's dream life. You know, you work Monday to Friday, three weeks on, one week off, you get paid well, and you make people laugh on a Friday night, which is a, a re, you know, it's like doing theatre, but comedy. So it's the most fun, most easy, stress-free thing you can do in acting. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, but if I want to get where I'm going, I've got to get back to trying to find those those complicated, heartbreaking, difficult, painful roles where you've got to sink your teeth into it a little bit. So I'm always 
wherever I am, I'm always kind of looking off thinking, what, where do I go next? What's going to happen next? Because I, I've never, ever taken it for granted that I have been from that kid in Grange Hill. When I used to, I, this is true, when I would go to bed at night, I was raised Catholic and um, I would go to bed every night and I would say, please, God, please just, I don't have to win an Oscar. I don't have to win a Golden Globe. I just want to be an actor. I don't want to have to be a taxi driver or, or work in a cafe or in a supermarket. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, I, I want to just, if I can make a living as an actor, that will be my prayer, my dream. And so somehow I've managed to just keep working, which was always the, the dream and the hope. Uh, and so I feel, even in times of difficulty, when things are tough, I remind myself to be grateful that that prayer came true. And, you know, life for any of us, no matter who you ask, it, you, everyone is going to have their ups and downs. That's just the journey. That's the human experience. But I have been really, really blessed and lucky that, um, that I just managed to keep going. You know, that was all I ever wanted to do is just keep going. And still, even at 45, uh, you know, for the next, I, God willing, 40 years, I hope I just keep keep working and just keeping one one role after the other. And then in 2013, you joined primetime fantasy drama Once Upon a Time as Robin Hood, which mm. has quite a strong fandom. Yes. Um, but, but does it surprise you five years on since it ended, the amount of affection and dedication for the show that that continues, especially how much money fans are willing to spend on conventions, merchandise and so forth? It's shocked me because I'd worked on, you know, 20 TV shows or something before I joined Once Upon a Time. So, you know, I was excited to join it because I knew it was a huge show in the US and around the world. But I did not anticipate what the fandom was like. That was, you know, having experienced the, the EastEnders thing where that recognition level gets to the point where it really sort of muddles your life up a bit. Uh, I didn't expect, but this took on a different thing. This was the social media side of it. And I, I was absolutely against social media. I would never have been on social media. And my wife knew this. And my wife is obviously the smart one out of the two of us. So she signed me up for Twitter for a couple of months before telling me. She was posing as me on social media. And she said, look, I've put you on Twitter. But it's okay. You've got a couple of thousand people following you. I was like, oh, wow, gosh, that's amazing. And I didn't realize that it, you're sort of opening a porthole between you and the world, which is great in many respects. And it's great to be able to communicate with the fans of the show. But then, of course, you know, I didn't realize there's these things called trolls mm. who, who will sort of say or do anything to evoke a response. And I'm one of those people, if you say something about me, I've had everything that you can imagine said about me. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's probably true. Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible actor. I'm a terrible person. Yes, I should die. But when you get into sort of talking about my wife or my kids and stuff like that, that's when I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not that's not OK. So it. You know, it's been largely fantastic and I've got to travel around the world and meet all these amazing fans who are so passionate and so sweet. And 99% of it is incredible and has been really amazing. And then there's always just that 1% where you go, okay, so we've just got to be a bit careful about about what you let in and 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 how much you read and stuff like that. Because I just thought it's not an actor's place to... You know, back when I was in EastEnders of Grange Hill, if I knew what everybody who was watching the television thought about me in real time, I probably would have been debilitated and not been able to carry on. Because, of course, some people are like, oh, he's crap, he's terrible, I hate him, he's ugly, he's this. It's fine when you don't hear it, but with Twitter and, and Instagram and all that, they can tell you 
that they, how much they hate you and how, and they'll go into detail about why they hate you and why that they hope that you get cancelled or die and stuff like that and you're like and the truth is I'm I'm kind of a sensitive guy I, I take I take it sort of to heart a little bit and I, you know I realised after a while you know use it as a platform to promote the things that you care about like my school or Oxfam or the environment or whatever but probably best not to read everything. Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there for whatever reason, they're just in pain themselves and they want to they wanna sort of throw that at you. And so I've just sort of stepped back from, from kind of communicating too much with people. Via, I'd rather meet people in person. When I meet people in person, people are much more reluctant to say, I hate you and I hope you die. And you're like, <laughs> okay, and would you like me to sign anything? Or <laughs> So... Uh, it's again, it's like anything, it's just learning how to sort of protect yourself and insulate yourself from, from some of the more crazy people out there, you know? I guess with a career spanning 40 years, it's probably unsurprising, but you've worked with everyone. I have been really lucky to work with some great ones. The first thing that springs to mind is a picture you posted on Instagram a few years ago, and you're on stage with Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, Christina Applegate, William Shatner, Martin Sheen. It's like a who's who of acting. Was that was that Shakespeare reading? It was, yeah. Tom and Rita do this. Sorry, Tom and Rita, like they're my best mates. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, who are the nicest people in the world. Um, I met Tom through Martin Short. Martin Short and I had made a movie together and Martin and, and Tom are very good friends. And Marty phoned me and said, would you like to do that? They do this Shakespeare thing. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson did the Shakespeare thing. I was like, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I will. Please let me do it. And that was before he told me who else was involved. And so when I got there, I was like, oh my God. It was like the most famous people in the world. Like people that I loved, people that I admired. Um, and, and the weird thing was, because I'm, I think I was the only person in the room with an English accent. I had these actors, these superstars going, is this how you say that? And, they, and I'm like, I don't know, I can barely read. Um, but I would just, yeah, yes, no, that, that sounds right, Tom. Yes, absolutely, yes, that's how we do it in, in Shakespearean land. Um, but I had an amazing, amazing time and they were very, very nice to me. And then they asked me to come back for seven years in a row or eight years in a row we did it. And every year it was a different cast, you know, then it was uh, one year we were doing Twelfth Night, I think it was, and Anthony Hopkins was there. And I, I, this was before sat-nav and before smartphones and I'm terrible with directions and I got lost. We checked, we moved to a different theater. We moved to, from the Geffen to the UCLA and I got lost. And I was like, and I, it's the only time I've, I think I had a panic attack. I was like, John Hanks is sitting around the table and I'm not there. And I got there and there was one seat empty. There's all these superstars sitting around doing a table read. They've already started, which adds to my panic. And I'm trying not to hyperventilate. And there's one chair empty between Tom Hanks and Anthony Hopkins. And I'm like, oh, sweet Jesus. So I go, I sit down. I'm like, I'm so sorry, Tom. I'm so sorry. I got lost. And I look at Anthony Hopkins, who is one of my absolute idols. He's like an absolute god to me. And I just, I'm so sorry. And he went, it's all right. You're here now. Just relax. And put his hand on my back. And I was like, I'm being touched by God. I'm actually <laughs> being touched by God right now. And he was the, just the nicest, kindest, most wonderful, benevolent, sweet man and uh, gave me his home phone number and said, if you ever want to run lines, I'm like, sure. And then rings Anthony Hopkins and go, will you just run this sitcom scene with me, <laughs> Sir Tony? You know, um, but just so nice. And, you know, they say never meet your heroes. Uh, and, and that occasion certainly proved it wrong. Um, so, yeah, that was... That was just one of those things where I cannot believe that I got to share a stage with those people, you know, just absolutely so lucky. 
Uh, outside of acting, just before the pandemic, you considered fostering a child. Yes. And I know COVID threw a spanner in the works um, and then your daughter made an appearance. But can you talk a bit about what influenced that? Um, well, I'm one of six and uh, we didn't have a huge amount of money growing up, but I realised that you can manage. You can always manage. Make a big pot of stew. There's enough for everybody. And, you know, once I, once we had our first child, a lot changed for me. I, I kind of knew that this would happen because I know how my heart and my brain works and... Um, once my son Flynn came along, it just felt like some sort of blinders had been taken off and I just felt very, very empathetic to the needs of children and, and so many kids that are in foster care or in orphanages and things like that. And I just thought, well, we could, we could do something. A friend of mine was involved, a producer friend of mine. Uh, work with this agency called Kids Save, and they, they fostered a kid for six months while they help try and find a parent, uh, a home for them. And I just thought, oh, that's amazing. And I was working with Oxfam, and we'd already gone to the refugee camps in Greece. And uh, and this is when my wife was pregnant with our second child. And we just saw some stuff and and had some really life-changing experience where I was like, we've got to do more. We, we've just got to do more. If we help one child, that's one child less out in the world that is cold and alone. And we watched this movie called Lion um, with the lovely Dev Patel, and and I just thought maybe adoption is something we should consider. And and then again, fate said, "Oh no, hang on, hang, hold my beer. Here's a daughter." And so when my daughter came along, we we've just sort of had our hands so full that. Um, but it's something that you know um, we we still kind of consider. And at the moment, things are just way too frantic to try and bring another child in because I don't think we could give them the love and the 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 nurturing that they need along with R three and an old dog and a acting school and you know there's just very little time in the day at the moment so I don't think it's fair to do it now but it's something that I I believe in strongly and I advocate for and um, you know when you I've been to a lot of care homes I've been to foster homes when you meet these kids you realise these are little humans that are going to grow up. And then they're going to be an influence in the world for the good or the bad. And a child without love and a child without somebody to care for it, it's inevitable that they're going to see the darkness in the world and therefore maybe head towards it. And we really, really need to build up the army of the good right now because there's enough crazy people with misinformation um, pushing agendas, you know, far right national front agendas that are, you know, in England, in America. And we just, we need, you know, it's like Bert Bacharach said, what the world needs now is love. And it starts with a parent loving a child. So if we, you know, having been to the refugee camps and stuff, we actually, my wife and I, when we were in Greece, we just visited the life jacket graveyard where you see these, this mountain of, of life jackets. And some of them were little kids' armbands, which just broke us. My wife was four or five months pregnant at the time. And it really just emotionally broke us. And then while we were, we'd left that and we'd gone to this little port. And then one of the guys, this incredible photographer who works in war zones and stuff said, oh, Sean, there's a boat coming in. And we actually saw a boat of refugees that had just traveled from Turkey to Greece. There's about 30 men, women, and children on the boat. And I remember, and to this day, I will never forget this, this nine or 10-year-old boy, couldn't speak English, speaking to these coast guards. And they were saying, who's with you? Where, where are your parents? And he was like, just shaking his head. And he basically, the coast guards explained that the parents couldn't afford to pay the pirates, the smugglers, their, for their fare. So they just put the kid on the boat 
in the hope that he's got a better chance of surviving. And, you know, stuff like that just stays with you and just, um, it leaves an indelible mark. And so it just, I, I think we just felt, I, I feel like I've been so lucky. You know, my prayers got answered. I got to do, I get to do what I love doing and get to make a living out of it. And the only way of making sense of, of having, getting emotional now thinking about it. Um, the only way to make sense of, uh, of good fortune and, and your, your prayers being answered is pay it forward. You know, try, try, don't, don't, just say, oh, I'm so lucky. Hashtag blessed. Um, do do something. Can you know? Do something that grows that 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 supports that spirit. You know, pay it forward and give it give that good fortune to somebody else. So yeah, I feel like trying to find that balance, and that's why working with Oxfam has been great because I can use the small, the little bit of celebrity that I have, or the the small platform that I have to try and help push the agenda for for what they're doing, which is which is really important work. You've um, you mentioned it a couple of times now, but uh, in September 2020, you launched your acting school, the Players Conservatory, or, yes. or is it Conservatory? I don't know. We're English and say conservatory. Uh, yes, I think you're saying it right, <laughs> conservatory. Um, uh, and you teach three, four classes a week online to students from more than 30 countries yeah. around the world. Tell me the, the genesis of the school. Well, I, um, my mother and father are Irish dancing teachers. My five siblings, out of the five of them, four of them are teachers. One at a, a, a very posh school in London, the rest of them are Irish dancing teachers. So I come from a teaching background. So I've grown up with it. I was at classes my whole life when I wasn't filming. So teaching is something that's in the DNA of our family. And I had thought for a long time, because I've had a lot of people, especially young people over the years, especially when I go to conventions and things, they'd say, how do you get into it? I want to do it. And I'd say, I, I, there's no clear answer, but you have to train. They're like, well, how do I train? How do I get into a drama school? I was like, I, I don't really know. And I thought, oh, you know what, I'd love to teach a class, maybe just for kids or, or maybe for young adults or whatever it was. And I was sort of thinking about starting a little class in LA where there's plenty of acting teachers that are very good, no more than I do. Um, but I thought, oh, you know, it'd be something that I'd love to do and sort of just it'd be something to give back and to try and um, try and use the years of experience that I've had, the, the lessons that I've learned along the way and try to install them. And, and then they go off to a, a proper institution and then they could try and get agents and so on. And and so I was sort of thinking about how best to do this. And then the pandemic hit. And of course, we're all sitting at home, can't go film, can't go do anything. And I was getting restless and I wanted to kind of do something proactive and useful and something that was beneficial and putting something positive and good out in the world. And so I thought, I'll just, I'll my brother actually came over to visit and he was teaching Irish dancing over Zoom. And I was like, wow, you can do that over Zoom. That's great. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if I could teach acting over Zoom. So I started a class and um, quickly really started to enjoy it and love it and was really having fun with it. And then it kind of grew. And then I thought then we would start bringing in some actor friends or producer writer friends to do Q&As so that they could answer some questions. Just basically give them a doorway to get in because the hardest thing for people that want to get into the business is where do you start? You can't get an agent without a showreel and you can't get a showreel without doing some work. And it's sort of this... Uh, this sort of riddle of, of of difficulty and I thought well maybe I could just give them a foundation to begin with how to how to break down a character how to navigate a scene how to uh you know understand the writer's intention um and and so I went off and actually took uh, I, I trained over the years with a few different people but I, I went off and took a course myself 
so that I could understand some of the fundamentals. And then I sort of took the bits that I thought were really valuable and useful and then merged them with the experience that I've had. And and now, as you say, I teach sort of four or five classes a week and I, I really love it. And it's been it's been great during the pandemic. I mean, I've gone back to work and, and made a few films and TV shows now uh, in the sort of second year of the pandemic. But but it's it's a lovely thing to have. And um, I don't know, I, I think just because my parents did it, my brothers and sisters do it, it just felt like a natural transition. And it's something that I continue to do and, and wish to grow. And I think this year we've I've said to the students, because they're all like, when are we going to get together and do a physical class? And I was like, well, when COVID stops being COVID, if things calm down and start to get better, I think we're going to try and do our first physical class in Los Angeles this at the end of the summer. And if that goes well, then we'll do one in New York, we'll do one in London, maybe one in Rio, one in Mexico, you know, um, sort of all over. Just do workshops, just so that they can feel what it's like to be in a class and do acting, you know, in person. But it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to try and give back and, and, and give people just that, that beginning. Because I can't, I can't, I'm not RADA, I'm not Lambda, I can't, I can't train them in the way that those institutions can, but I can give them an idea of what an actor's life is and what is expected of them and what they would need to do if they wish to pursue it. So it's, it's, been, it's been a real uh, wonderful endeavour. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's not just purely acting that you're teaching, you also cover preparing for auditions, how to find an agent, getting headshots, it's like a whole actor's toolkit if you I like. wanted yeah I wanted it to be a sort of mentorship so that when you come train with me the and not just me I've got a couple of other actor friends that um, have stepped in when I'm when I was making the movie last year or when I was doing the TV show I've got other actors because a lot of my friends are actors and sometimes they they've appeared where they're not working and I'm like you know you're bored at sitting at home you're reading scripts trying to find that next job and I said well come come teach for me because I thought it'd be beneficial for the students not to just to have me teach them but and my goal is to sort of have just proper professional working actors that are in the business so that, you know, they can give you their two cents worth. And then we expanded one of my great friends in Ireland, Emma Hetherington, who's a wonderful Irish author who's on her 14th or 15th book now and about to start turning them into movies. I asked her if she'd teach a creative writing class, which she did, which has been amazing. So we've got a class of creative writers that are all loving their class. Later this year, my friend who's a chef, Bernard, is going to teach a cooking course, which I'm excited because I can't cook. So he's going to teach me and then teach other people too. Uh, I've got another friend who's a four-time Emmy-winning singer who's going to do a voice class. I'm going to have a director's course, um, a screenwriter's course. Basically, I wanted it to make it like, that's why it's called the conservatory, because I wanted it to be a bit of everything. And if if there's something you're interested in, maybe we can help get you started and, um, you know, just just get those first difficult steps out of the way and get, and then show you what to do, where where to go next, how to get an agent, how to put a showreel, as you say. So because these things, even though they might be known to actors, are completely, you know, a, a riddle and a mystery to those outside of the business. So we're just trying to provide a gateway to to get people started. And it's it's been great. And as you say, you know, teaching people from so many different countries has been incredible. We've got people from the United Arab Emirates and Russia and um, Singapore and France, Germany, Spain, Ireland, England, Canada, you know. So it's a really lovely thing for the students because they all become, they're like, oh, wow, I've got 10 like pen pals in a class from all over the world. So it's just been, I, I didn't realize that I would love it so much and that I would get so much out of it personally, but I've become very fond of the students and, and actually really look forward to taking the classes. Well, for, for everyone that's listening, there will be all the details in the show notes for where you can 
Book yourself on to a, a class with Sean. It's yeah, it's it's dead easy. Just email us at theplayersconservatory at gmail.com, I think. <laughs> you're um you're in the minority of actors who started out as a as a child and have continued to work and get hired every year for, for four decades, mm. let alone the minority of soap actors who've gone on to break America mm. um and stay relatively sane without <laughs> going off the rails too much. Relatively being the operative word. <laughs> <laughs> How have you managed that and what do you attribute it to? Um, well, uh, gosh, uh, my family and my friends and my wife, um, are very, very good at not, uh, allowing any kind of delusions of grandeur. And, um, and also, uh, you know, to sanity and humility, I think, you know, hand in hand, I, I had my moments where I, I lost my way a little bit. I think around the EastEnders pop days where my recognition level got a bit high and you're in the papers and stuff like that. It's it's difficult to not sort of drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. And I did a little bit. And my parents were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Steady there. You're becoming a bit of a git. And they sort of were very honest and in no uncertain terms, especially my big brother, Darren, sort of said, you know what, you're starting to become that person that we don't really like. And I had a bit of an epiphany in that period where I was like, wow, yeah, I, I am starting to turn into somebody that I don't really like. And I'm behaving in a way that I don't think is very cool. And, you know, like any of us, we have our ups and downs and there are moments of insecurity and there are moments of uh, worry, is this going to end and stuff like that. But I think having that strong base, like strong friends and family that just don't put up with any of that nonsense and keep you grounded, because I think keeping you grounded is also part of keeping you sane. The insanity comes when you start thinking that you're something that you're not um because this is such a fickle business and now we live in a kind of cancelled culture mm. you know a anybody can be cancelled for for anything and it just i just keep thinking about what is the next job what is the next thing i'm doing and try to focus on that and 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 put most of my energy goes towards my family and, you know, when you're changing nappies and having to go to the park, uh, not have to, but when you're going to the park, and, you know, when you're being a dad full time and teaching full time, and there's not much time for that kind of behavior, really. And also, I just think I have been incredibly lucky. Part of that paying it forward thing is trying to keep a perspective that, you know, there before the grace of God that I'm alive, much less have still have a career. And, I, you know, the people that I look up to and I admire you know, the people I've been fortunate to meet, like the Tom Hankses and the Anthony Hopkins, are such nice people. They're gentlemen and they are kind and they are respectful. They're not... The few people that I've met that aren't such big names, they act badly and they behave badly on set. And it's it looks terrible, you know, and I, because I grew up on set. The crew always feel like an extended family to me. So any sort of disrespect for the crew, keeping the crew waiting, won't come out of my trailer... I've said to a couple of actors in the past that will remain nameless, you know, that's not great. You know, you shouldn't do that because the crew get here before us, they leave after us and they get paid less than us. Extend them that human courtesy. They want to get home and put their kids to bed. You have a strop and sit in your trailer for an hour on the phone to your agent. That means they don't get to put their kids to bed. And that's unforgivable to me. I don't think, I don't care who you are. I've worked with some of the biggest names and they're nice. So you don't get to be an whatever sometimes well received and sometimes they're like well i'm gonna do this and i'm like you know what it's a small business 
When you behave like that, your reputation gets around and, you know, no matter how big you think you are on this show or this movie, people talk. And when you're a jerk, they will... Uh, sorry, I sound very American. When you're an asshole, <laughs> it, it, it becomes known. It does become known. It, you know, your reputation precedes you. And, and I think, as I say, I always feel incredibly grateful that I have a job. So I, if, if I manage to, to beat the competition to get the part, I'm certainly not going to blow it by being a dick. Mm. You know, just before we leave, I wanted to ask you. You um, you started flying lessons many moons ago. Yeah, and uh, and I think you're at the point of you're able to take off and land. Yes, can you do the bit in the middle now? No, I never learned that bit. I can take off and land, but once I get up there, I am clue. I'm like, what am I doing in this aeroplane? <laughs> uh, do you know? I I was ready to take my solo. I was about to take my solo, which is a bit scary. And then um, we started having children. And then I, re you know, then you read Harrison Ford's crashed his plane again. And I'm like, if Harrison Ford's crashing his plane and I can barely drive a car, maybe, just maybe I should step back from this for a minute. But Tom Cruise is flying a plane and a helicopter. But he's Tom. John Travolta flies a plane. I know, lovely John Travolta. I, and, and, you know, they're, they're brilliant. They're Tom Cruise and John Travolta. I'm not even in the same, you know, ballpark as those people. But um, I do, but I was flying little planes like Cessnas and Tomahawks and stuff. And they do, they do have a tendency to crash. And um, my wife was just like, I've, I've flown my wife uh, a few times and, and she's like, yeah, okay, you're a better pilot than you are a driver because there's less to hit up there, frankly. Um, but since we had kids, even though we've done some silly things like hang gliding off a cliff in Brazil and, and stupid stuff that I absolutely shit myself doing. My wife's fearless, but I'm not. I'm fearful. Uh, now I'm so... Uh, anything. I mean, I quit smoking when my daughter was born because I'm so fearful of the idea of not being there. You know what I mean? Now my job, don't forget my life. I'm, an, I'm not even really remotely, I'm a day player in the show of my own life. Now it's everything is about my kids and I just, I'm trying to make sure that I stay alive and stay healthy so that I can make sure that I can raise them. And then once my job is done, then I can go back to scaling ice cliffs and hang gliding off cliffs in Brazil and stuff. But for now, I think it's very important that I just try to stay alive. <laughs> that's my goal. That's, that's, that's my mission statement. Stay alive. I will find you. Stay alive. <laughs> Sean, it's been lovely talking to you. I know you're a very busy bunny. So thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was lovely to have a chat with you, Genevieve. Thank you for asking me to do this and, and lovely to talk to you again. Thanks again to Sean for a lovely chat. You can find out more about Sean's acting school at theplayersconservatory.com. Do check it out and why not sign up for a class while you're there. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from. So thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like. I don't make any money from this podcast, so if you've enjoyed yourself for the past hour, a donation would be greatly appreciated to help with running costs. And please don't keep the podcast to yourself. Do share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time. Thanks for listening.